Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Bob Reisman about his book, I Feel So Good, The Life and Times of Big Bill Brunsey, published in 2011 by the University of Chicago Press. In this richly detailed biography, Reisman follows Brunsey's travels, as well as he can, given Bill's penchant for myth-telling regarding his own life, beginning with Arkansas and the deep south of his childhood, to Chicago, where Brunsey established himself as a founder of modern blues, to Iowa, where he spent a year or so recuperating from the stresses of life, to his numerous extended stays in Europe, where he paved the way for fellow blues travelers, and back to Chicago, where he lived his last years quietly hobnobbing with the greats of many musical genres. If the pallbearers at Brunsey's 1958 funeral are any indication, they included Wynne Strachey, Muddy Waters, Ransom Nowling, Stud Sterkel, Chet Roble, Brother John Sellers, Campbell Red, Sunnyland Slim, and Otis Spann, then Bill was indeed a giant of the blues. But Brunsey wasn't just a blues player. He was also accepted in the worlds of jazz and folk music, in the still segregated worlds of white and black musics, and as an oral historian of African-American life. Brunsey's songs, of which there are hundreds, cover grand amounts of topical territory. He was at home writing, playing, and singing songs of earthly debauchery, spirituals, pointedly critical descriptions of racism in the U.S., folk, jazz, and blues. In the end, Bob Reisman paints a picture of Big Bill Brunsey as a man who managed to combine those aspects of being a musician that so many can't. He was a consummate professional who stayed true to his artistic vision. Bob Reisman lives in Chicago, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, Bob, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, thanks for being here. Uh, why don't we start off, uh, tell us a little bit about your biography, please. Where are you from? How did you get to where you are, etc.? Uh, sure. I'm from Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, grew up there. Was fortunate enough to grow up there. Uh, become a teenager in the late 1960s when there was a small but vibrant coffeehouse scene. So uh, some of my earliest exposures to live music included uh, seeing the Reverend Gary Davis only a few feet away. Mm-hmm. And But you're in Chicago now. I've been in Chicago for uh, for the better part of, uh, of three decades and uh, this is where I've been based while I was doing the research and the writing for the book. Uh-huh. Uh, how did you get from Providence to Chicago? Uh, I came out here to sell corrosion-resistant nuts and bolts, uh, <laughs> wound up getting a master's in social work, and then having two uh, very exciting jobs as an administrator at the University of Chicago. Ah. And uh, how did you come to write this book, I Feel So Good? Uh, well, about a dozen or so years ago, uh, I was looking for a project in uh, blues and folk music. And so that was a period where uh, a number of very good biographies of uh, significant figures in those fields had uh, had been written. And so I was reading biographies of Muddy Waters and Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly, and I kept coming across the name Big Bill Brunsey. And I realized it was a name that I knew, but I really... Uh, was very unfamiliar with his music. So as I started seeking it out and listening to it, first I was just knocked out by uh, 
uh, his his the quality of his singing it was so warm. It was so expressive. Uh, and then uh, and then next uh, the guitar playing, uh, both the quality of it uh, and uh, the variety of uh, music styles in which he would be uh, in which he played during the course of his thirty year uh, recording and performing career. Uh, and so and then. I learned that he had uh, written an autobiography, in the, which was published uh, in both Europe and America in the mid-1950s uh, called Big Bill Blues. And when I got a hold of that and uh, I started reading it and uh, devoured it, and what I saw was that uh, Big Bill had uh, an unusually uh, effective skill with words and un- really an uncommonly uh, good gift for uh, for expressing himself in words, which included songwriting, but wasn't just uh, wasn't restricted to songwriting. Uh, and so uh, at that point, I really started digging a lot deeper, found that there uh, at that time had not been a biography written of, uh, of him. Uh, and uh, that got me on my way. And so um, you as a uh sort of expert on the blues and Chicago blues, uh, you weren't even really familiar with him, it sounds like. I mean, so those of us who have just dabbled in it, uh, we don't have to feel bad for not being experts on, on Big Bill. Oh, no, no, no. And, and let me just be very clear. I was a fan uh, when I started out, and uh, I, was, uh, I was no more than a fan. I was no less than a fan. I, I was passionate about the music, but I was hardly knowledgeable. Uh, and so really, for, for about the, the past... Uh, uh, a dozen years or so, uh, I, I've been pursuing uh, this uh, the work of writing and researching the book through a, a Brunsio-centric worldview, uh, which which wound up leading me to dis- to places and people and uh, and um, uh, information and uh, uh, coming to levels of uh, of recognition of the magnitude of Big Bill's achievements and accomplishments that I've uh, I've tried to convey uh, in the book. Mm-hmm. So why don't we uh, get into the book, and we'll generally follow the outline of the book, but we can go, you know, if you want to jump around, we can, or if I want to jump around, I suppose we can. But let's let's start with uh, chapter one and, and a discussion of his funeral in 1958, and can you discuss the, the importance or the significance of the, the pallbearers at, at Big Bill's funeral? Sure. Uh, Big Bill died in August of 1958, uh, and uh, the... Uh, arrangements for his funeral were made by uh, a gentleman named Wynn Strachey. Now, Wynn is best known uh, these days as being the co-founder of the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago, and uh, which had just, in fact, taken place uh, the previous winter. Uh, but Wynn had worked closely with Big Bill. They were close personally and professionally. They were close enough uh, that when uh, that, that Bill had named Wynn as the executor uh, of his estate, and they had worked together in a seminal folk music group called uh, the I Come For To Sing Review, which uh, first performed in Chicago in the late 1940s, and uh, which also included uh, Studs Terkel. And what uh, Wynn did uh, as he worked with Bill's widow to make the arrangements for the funeral was to try to have this be uh, a public acknowledgement uh, and expression uh, of Bill's uh, significance to, uh, in, in one way to think about it, is his constituencies. And so, uh, so Wynn hired a professional photographer to take the picture, someone whose pictures had appeared in, uh, in Jet, and in, in, sorry, in, in Ebony magazine, and 
what uh, what these images show uh, is uh, it, it's quite a vivid picture. What you see is on one side of the casket, there are the uh, leading figures in the emerging uh, folk music world of Chicago. You see Winstrocky, you see Studs Terkel, you see Chet Robel, a piano player who also performed with the I Come For To Sing Review. And on the other side, you see two generations uh, of some of the most uh, significant and influential uh, blues musicians in Chicago. You see uh, Sonny Land Slim, uh, you see uh, Tampa Red, who along with Bill was really, Tampa Bill, and, uh, sorry, Tampa Red and Big Bill were really the, the two leading stars of the Chicago blues scene, recorded blues scene of the 1930s and 40s. You see Muddy Waters, remarkable uh, piano player, Otis Spann, uh, and at the front of the procession, his eyes downcast, you see Muddy Waters. Uh, and in, 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 in a real way, not just, uh, the, the image is in fact uh, telling an accurate story here. The, uh, uh, the leadership of the Chicago blues community uh, was being passed from Big Bill with his passing to, uh, to Muddy Waters. And you can see in how he carries himself uh, how the weight of that uh, is, is affecting him. Mm-hmm. Um, now, before we get uh, specifically into his biography, I think it's important, as you as you suggest, um, there's you know, there's Bill's own autobiography. There's also a number of, of recordings of, of of Bill telling his stories. But you start out by saying that Bill's story of his own life is is a creation myth, and that you know he was a storyteller. Tell us about how he, I guess, told his own story. Well, uh, if, I'll take a st I'll use that as an opportunity to take a step back uh, and describe what the pro what the, what the, uh, ju my journey was like in, uh, in especially in the uh, the early years uh, of trying to do the research to tell Bill Big Bill's story properly. Uh, what I started with uh, actually, since having no background uh, in uh, in doing this kind of research, uh, I had to go with whatever. Um, uh, whatever skills I might have had. And I had worked uh, for a number of years in human resources. And in human resources, you start with the job description. And so the, uh, the first uh, point in a job description for being a Big Bill's biographer uh, I identified was to go and find the fact-based documentation uh, about Bill's life. And I spent a fair amount of time trying to locate uh, any number of uh, records in any number of media, uh, census records, uh, social security information, any kind of documentation which might link him to, uh, or which might uh, illustrate the story he told about his birth, which is that he had been born in 1893, uh, June uh, 26th in Scott, Mississippi, uh, as William Lee Conley uh, Brunsey. And after uh, talking to as many people as I could locate in Chicago and elsewhere, in the blues community, the folk music community, what I concluded was uh, probably best expressed by, uh, by Winnie the Pooh in, in one of the Winnie the Pooh stories where, where he describes, uh, the more I looked for it, the more it wasn't there. And <laughs> what I then concluded was this was going to be uh, much more of a challenge than I had anticipated. And it was only 
when I was able, after work, I, I was several years into the research, and, and Big Bill's life was certainly varied uh, and deep in so many ways. I was, I was certainly quite busy gathering information. But as for the uh, specific information about what his name was and where he came from, uh, that remained elusive. And it wasn't until I was lucky enough to travel to Amsterdam uh, in 2003 and interview uh, a woman named Pim Van Isfeldt, who was the Dutch woman with whom, a Dutch woman with whom Bill had a relationship and a child, Michael Van Isfeldt, uh, born in the mid-1950s and still very much with us, uh, to, uh, to, to get her perspectives and memories of, uh, of Big Bill. And so I, had, I was lucky enough to spend uh, the, uh, the better part of a day with Pim Van Isfeldt with, with two Dutch researchers, and she couldn't have been more candid or gracious in sharing uh, her memories and recollections of Big Bill. And it was at the end of the day, we had really, um, she, she had given so much time, this was really about, we were just about wrapping up, and uh, Pim uh, walked over uh, to the side of the room and came back with a shoebox. And in this shoebox, there was a pile of letters still in, uh, in their envelopes uh, that Bill had written her during the course of their relationship in the mid-1950s. And uh, I knew that Bill had been uh, something of a correspondent. It did turn out that he was a prolific correspondent with, with many people, which did provide a, uh, a lot of material that uh, enabled me to, to flesh out his story. But this was a setting where I, I, there was, it would have been just uh, much too rude to ask to, to read each letter. But what I did do was to uh, go through them, to look at their return addresses, and to see the date of the postmark, because that way I could uh, flesh out the timeline that I'd started where I was able to, um, uh, to log in Bill's travels, because Bill traveled extensively, particularly in the 1950s, where he made half a dozen tours of Europe. And it was the return address on one of the envelopes that gave me the first clue to Bill's uh, origins in Arkansas because it, uh, it showed the name Wesley uh, with an address in North Little Rock, Arkansas. And that was a turning point in my research. Uh, I went back to the States. I thanked him profusely. Uh, went back to the States, did as much research as I could um, from Chicago, and then went down to Arkansas. And by making that visit to Arkansas, uh, I, I, I went to archives uh, in, uh, in Little Rock and was then, a staff member there then suggested that uh, I go to the Wednesday evening Bible study class at the church at which um, it turns out Wesley was the last name of the married name of Bill's, the sister he was closest to, uh, Laney Bradley Wesley. And that's where Ms. Wesley, uh, where the funeral services had taken place. And so I went over there on a Wednesday evening for Bible study class uh, asked uh, whomever might be receptive and responsive if they knew uh, the name uh, Laney Wesley. And a gentleman was kind enough to make a phone call. And as I was participating in the Bible study class, uh, someone poked me in the ribs and saw that the gentleman was at the phone in the back of the room gesturing for me. Uh, and uh, that was how I met uh, one Big Bill's two uh, grandnieces, uh, Rosie Tolbert and Joanne Jackson, who it's because of their 
uh, generosity and willingness and enthusiasm in sharing whatever materials they have and what they have is exceptional and extraordinary uh, to uh, so that I could come to the conclusion that uh, Big Bill Brunzi was in fact born Lee Conley Bradley. Uh, it was June 26, but it was 1903 and it wasn't in Mississippi. It was in, uh, it was near Lake Dick, about 65 miles southeast of Little Rock uh, in Jefferson County, Arkansas. Wow. Uh, and, and then throughout his life, he, he kind of uh, uh, embellishes the story when people ask sometimes, doesn't he, about his biography? Well, he certainly maintained uh, the the facts as he stated them uh, a, a number of years later. Uh, certainly, as he started to be interviewed in the 1940s by Alan Lomax, and then uh, participating in, in numerous radio interviews with Studs Terkel uh, about Scott, Mississippi, and uh, uh, and and the 18. Uh, 93 date. Uh, in talking with uh, with Bill's family members, uh, they don't really know why he changed his name, uh, and uh, they they, as they say, uh, they and they knew Big Bill. Uh, both of his grandnieces uh, were old enough uh, growing up that they were spent time with him. They remember they have fond and vivid memories of Bill coming down from Chicago whenever he came to to North Little Rock to visit uh, their grandmother. Uh, it, was, uh, it, it was a celebration, it was a party. He'd get out his guitar and play. But what they don't know is uh, what motivation there may have been for having him establish uh, an entirely uh, different identity. They, as they say, there, there's the sense that there may have been something that Bill wanted to distance himself from and, and keep at arm's length for the rest of his life uh, between whatever may have happened uh, during his younger years in Arkansas. Uh, but uh, what, and, and I did find in my research, there were a number of people listed in the family death records that had a name slightly like Brunzi. Uh, it, it's Bromsey. Uh, and uh, I, I think what Bill did uh, for whatever the reason was, he, he he took that, he made a few tweaks, uh, he told a story about how a secretary at Paramount Records uh, suggested the name Big Bill, and with that, he had his professionally, uh, professional identity constructed, uh, and, um, and and he rode that very successfully for, for many years. Mm -hmm. So then tell us uh, about Bill's early life. What was it? What was the world like that he grew up in? Sure. But let me just back up, and if I might say, uh, which I think was the answer to a previous question, or I'd like to respond to it, which is, uh, as a, a biographer, once I had identified uh, both from the family records, which were then uh, confirmed by uh, explicit materials, census records, marriage licenses, uh, and materials such as that, uh, I... It, it took me a while to puzzle through how to tell these two stories uh, in some way, in a way that would be uh, intelligible and, and engaging to the reader. In other words, how do you tell Bill's version uh, of his origins uh, and at the same time present the fact-based uh, uh, narrative that goes that for, for which uh, the family records and the census records support it? And uh, what I concluded is that each of those is an essential part of telling Big Bill, of doing justice to telling Big Bill Brunzi's story. Uh, the fact-based documentation is what's laid out in the book. But to me, it is a hallmark of his uh, imaginative powers 
to have created the story that he told about himself and about his family and family members uh, in um, in the interviews and, and especially in in the autobiography uh, Big Bill Blues, which was based on him writing down um, pieces of you know episodes uh, which uh, which a Belgian couple Yannick and Margot Brunog edited. Uh, into uh, into the narr- narrative of the book, uh, Big Bill Blues. But that what Big Bill did was to, uh, we there, okay. Uh, what, Big Bill, what Big Bill did was to uh, come up with composite portraits of family members or to insert uh, family members into uh, figures that would enable him to tell the story of the African-American experience of the late 19th, early uh, to mid 20th century to people who were generally quite unfamiliar with it. Uh, and the, that's why uh, when uh, he started telling these, um, tell, putting the stories down on paper uh, or doing interviews, being interviewed by uh, Alan Lomax or by Studs Terkel, uh, each of them exceptional oral historians, uh, what he was doing was uh, giving a context and a background and a sense of what it was like to be in a place that most of the readers or the listeners uh, had never been. Right. So, so please tell us then about, I guess, the mix of his childhood, his story combined with your story. Right. So, uh, Bill grew up in an economically poor but culturally rich community uh, in rural Arkansas. He was one of 10 children. Uh, there was, he had a father and a mother. Uh, and there was an ex- uh, the extended family was very much part of that world as well uh, on both sides uh, of the family. In particular, um, music was a significant part of that world. Bill, Bill was born. Uh, in uh, in 1903, and so this was a world where uh, people gathering together uh, to provide their own entertainment was uh, a primary source of uh, of relaxation. Uh, they worked hard, primarily agricultural work, um, through uh, through the end of the day uh, Saturday uh, in general. But Saturday night was definitely a time. Uh, where they could um, uh, forget some of the cares uh, of the work week. And uh, in particular, it's interesting to note that Bill's first instrument was a was the fiddle. And he describes, uh, he described to Alan Lomax making a cornstalk fiddle. He then described making uh, homemade instruments uh, beyond that. And it was truly a formative experience for him to be playing in what could uh, very accurately be described as a black string band. That was a primary unit um, for you know, community uh, pleasure and entertainment uh, in, the, in Southern communities, African-American communities throughout the South, and generally included uh, guitar, banjo, uh, mandolin, uh, perhaps a bass of some kind. And that experience served Bill, served Bill remarkably well throughout his career. Uh, and particularly as a fiddle player, he had a dual role. When it was time for him to take a solo, he needed to be able to be enough of a virtuoso to hold the audience's interest uh, and to really drive the, uh, the performance forward. At the same time, he had to lay back when it was some the guitar player, the banjo players, uh, mandolin players turned to solo. 
And that particular skill, learning how to play behind another musician and play in such a way that his uh, performance would support and enhance what the other musician, musician was doing, uh, laid the groundwork for, uh, for many of the most um, wonderful recordings he made, not as a leading performer, although he made hundreds of those, but in support of some of the other leading luminaries of the Chicago blues scene uh, of the, uh, the and recording world of the 1930s uh, and 40s. And what he also did uh, as he grew up uh, in this setting and in this tight-knit community with a close family and with uh, others in the community surrounding the family was he had the experience of a mentor. Now, he blended those uh, those figures into uh, someone he called Uncle Jerry Belcher uh, in his writings and in his reminiscences. And uh, Uncle Jerry was a uh, actually not not unlike the person that Bill grew up to be. He was someone who would uh, deliver philosophical comments, often very wryly put, uh, and uh, but also someone for whom music was uh, a, a a primary. Uh, focus in his life. Now, I've dug as as much as I was able to. No family members know of any Uncle Jerry. There, there's no Uncle Jerry. There's no record of any Uncle Jerry Belcher, and there's no records in any of the official uh, records. But uh, I think it's very safe to say, as a composite portrait of of Uncle Jerry, it's a wonderful example of Bill distilling the experience of growing up in the community that he did, and uh, in some ways taking that figure with him uh, when he went north to Chicago um, uh, several years later uh, in the early to mid-1920s and have that be a template for, uh, for how he carried himself as a musician, but also as someone who later became a mentor uh, to so many other blues musicians. So uh, another theme or in his, in his songs and his stories that you suggest early on is that of uh, in which a, a, a white man uh, helps out a, a black man or helps out uh, Big Bill? Is this going back to his childhood or? Uh... Well, the the story, the time, the era in which he was uh, presenting those stories, uh, he was presenting it to uh, to white uh, figures in his life, such as Alan Lomax and Studs, Studs Terkel uh, and others, and so he was in a position where he could look retrospectively, take whatever pieces or elements uh, he thought would best serve the interests of conveying the point he wanted to make uh, and have that be uh, the story. Uh, Studs Terkel uh, was a uh, was a, a, uh, also, as, as Wynne Strachey was, uh, a, a personal friend uh, and a professional colleague of Big Bill's. And uh, Studs uh, was, was a great admirer of Big Bill and, t and spoke and told anecdotes about Big Bill and underscored his significance for decades uh, after, uh, after, year, after Big Bill died. And, uh, and what he said about Bill uh, at one point, I think, conveys a fair amount of, uh, of, I think it's a wise insight. It's Bill is always telling the truth, his truth. <laughs> One thing, this might be jumping ahead a little bit, but one thing that really struck me is uh, Bill uh, was incredibly professional in everything he did, you know, and and uh, and so he he was always, as you suggest, conscious of his audience, right? 
what Bill had that I didn't know about uh, until I started assembling all the pieces that I could find recordings and interviews and written materials and other people commenting uh, about Bill. Uh, but what shines through uh, in a close study of his life and his work is he had an unusual ability, uh, particularly as a musician, uh, to look around the corner uh, and see what was coming next. And so whatever it was he had mastered uh, in the current or the previous phase of his life, he would uh, present and play and record uh, as vigorously and as often uh, as possible. But at the same time, he, my phrase for this is his, an, his antennae were out. He was always trying to pick up uh, how long that was likely to be successful. And at the point at which something else uh, would seem to be uh, the next coming thing, he would at least recognize and identify that. And in numerous cases, and, and really his versatility uh, is unusual in the history of American popular music. Few musicians have been as successful as he was uh, in different genres or different styles uh, as he was over the course of his 30-year recording career. So what, what are some illustrations of that? Well, he, he left uh, Arkansas, headed to Chicago, uh, as so many African-American uh, people did, moving from the South, coming up uh, to the North, looking for uh, better opportunities uh, in the uh, early decades of the 20th century. And he arrived in Chicago as a country fiddle player. Well, when he got to Chicago in... Um, in, in the early to mid 1920s, Chicago was a uh, em emerging as a powerhouse uh, of blues and jazz, uh, and in particular uh, for uh, blues recording. Uh, the Paramount uh, Company, which was based in uh, in Wisconsin, uh, was uh, starting to set up its recording operations or have the recordings done. Uh, that they would then uh, manufacture an issue from Wisconsin, but the recording was being done in Chicago. So Bill gets there at a time that uh, what's happening is the emergence of a set of solo male blues recording uh, artists. The most famous of those are uh, Blind Blake uh, and uh, and Blind Lemon Jefferson. Uh, in, and the, the one he identified, and both of those uh, are clearly influences uh, on Big Bill, but the figure whom he identified as having the most direct personal impact was a performer named Papa Charlie Jackson, who is less well known these days. But he had one of the first big hits uh, as a solo uh, male blues recording artist of a song called uh, Salty Dog Blues, the same song that years later would be part of Flatten Scruggs uh, repertoire. So it, 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 it's had a good run. But Papa Charlie... Uh, was someone who, uh, however Bill encountered him once Bill got to Chicago, and Bill had a brother living in Chicago when he got there. I documented that from census records, so he had a foothold there. He had his starting point. Uh, but Bill clearly recognized very early on that that a country fiddle player wasn't going to get too many gigs and, and unlikely to get any recording opportunities uh, in, this, uh, in this era. But uh, Papa Charlie did say, uh, Big Bill, you need to learn how to play the guitar. And he described how 
Uh, Papa Charlie took him to Maxwell Street, the, the fabled uh, but real open air market uh, where musicians, where, where instruments and a lot of other things uh, were bought and sold and where some musicians were able to get their start uh, performing. And, uh, and then Papa Charlie did something else to go beyond that, which again, uh, Bill took note of and then uh, made that part of, uh, of, of, of how he handled himself. Papa Charlie went to uh, the, the leading producer of a blues recording, the guy responsible for doing this for Paramount, a guy named uh, J. Mayo Williams. Now, he was known as Ink Williams for his ability to sign artists and, uh, and get their recordings out. And it was Papa, what Bill saw was that Papa Charlie was willing to use the status and the stature that he had as a, as a star, as a successful recording artist, to help someone coming to town with some demonstrated ability, but who needs that level of entree to have his shot. Uh, and that was a model that Bill then used to help uh, succeeding uh, really a couple of generations uh, of blues artists uh, who were enormously grateful for that. But in that sequence, uh, Bill Bill describes uh, practicing and then going in and uh, and and uh, and having a uh, uh, a tryout for for Mayo for Inc. Williams and Inc. Williams saying, "You're not ready yet. Go back and practice." But several months later, uh, he recorded along with uh, with another performer, the two of them, uh, and. That one took, at that point, Ink Williams said, okay, this is good enough to release. And that got Big Bill in the late 1920s, uh, off and running uh, at, in his record. In his, that was the beginning of his 30-year recording career. And also at the time, this time, obviously, he, he's playing, playing out live for audiences quite a bit. Um, can you discuss the, the, I think you call them house rent parties that he played? What uh, in in the mid 1920s there were not blues clubs as we've come to know them over the past uh, numerous decades uh, from probably you know the, the late 1930s onward. But at that point there were um, there were clubs for a wealthier clientele where jazz bands would play, uh, but there really weren't venues for blues musicians. Blues hadn't really emerged as, uh, as a genre that it would make it worthwhile for a, uh, uh, for a venue uh, to make a go of it. Also remember, this was prohibition. So the settings for Bill's performances, once he got to Chicago, were in places called house rent parties, which all of which just meant that uh, someone with an apartment, uh, and yet it could well have been that the rent was due, uh, probably on a Saturday night, would gather. Uh, they'd often have a piano. Someone would bring a guitar. A musician might bring a guitar. Everybody brings uh, food. Uh, people bring uh, alcohol, which is, of course, illegal. Uh, and, uh, and they toss something uh, in the pot for, uh, you know, for the, the, the apartment owner to be able to stay there for another month. But that was the setting where Bill had to impress an audience. That's where he had to show that he could play in a style that would hold their interest and that would keep the entertainment and the dancing going through, uh, through an evening. And the style, uh, the music style that, um, that he, would, he, would, he did perform in at that point was something called hokum. Uh, hokum had a, uh, a, a big uh, hit 
in uh, in the in, in the late 1920s uh, with uh, uh, the piano player Georgia Tom uh, Georgia Tom Dorsey, who later became uh, known as Thomas A. Dorsey, the father of modern gospel music, uh, and uh, and Tampa Red, and it was a song called "It's Tight Like That," and that's a a nice crystallization of hokum uh, to say that hokum music. Uh, used double entendre would in fact be a wild uh, overstatement simply because uh, it was really single entendre. This was party music. This was a music that people would be getting uh, frisky with on a, on a Saturday night. They're already drinking illegally at that point. Uh, this was truly the good time party music of that era. Uh, and Bill uh, again, he comes as a country fiddler. He learns a new instrument, the guitar. Uh, and then uh, his first recording for Paramount, in fact, was called House Rent Stomp. So he, uh, I mentioned earlier, he had, the ability, he had the ability to see what was coming next. What really distinguishes him as a musician was not just the ability to perceive that, although that's significant, but the ability to be able to master a new style, and in this case, on a new instrument, in such a way that uh, in a fairly short period of time, he's deemed good enough to be able to be recorded by Paramount Records. And that was a theme, that is a theme, that runs through his 30-year his recording career, his ability to identify what's coming next as a musical style and then find a way and to demonstrate the kind of focus and discipline it must have taken to master each new style every step of the way. Must have been fascinating for you. I mean, I imagine you maybe you found some of these places that they played, and you 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 stood there. <laughs> um, what's uh, my comment about that? I, I wish that had had happened in the present day. From time to time, people will come to Chicago and they'll want to see. You know, let, can we go on a blues tour of of the great sites uh, of uh, you know a, a big Bill Brunsey blues tour? And unfortunately. Uh, it's possible to do a tour like that, but it, it tends to be, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, visits to more than a few vacant lots. Uh, uh. It, it's a way, sadly, of visiting places that, uh, that aren't there anymore. Mm-hmm. So you already mentioned a number of people that, that were important in Bill's life. Uh, there's one person who, for better or for worse, was very important. His name was Lester Melrose. Can you speak of him? Lester Melrose was someone whom Bill met uh, just around the time he started recording for Paramount Records uh, in the late 1920s. And he was someone who played a key role in uh, Bill's success as a recording artist uh, through the late 1940s. And there were two people in Chicago who were the guys that you had to get on your side to get you into a recording session if you were an aspiring blues musician in that period. One was uh, Ink Williams, who I mentioned, uh, first for Paramount and then later for, uh, for DECA. Uh, and the other was Lester Melrose. And Lester Melrose never worked for a specific record company, but the big record companies, particularly starting in the, the mid-1930s, uh, the record business took a big hit in the Depression, in the early years of the Depression. There was actually very little recording uh, in, in the early 1930s. But then as things started to pick up, uh, the big companies, as RCA Victor and Columbia were, um, wanted to get uh, really a production process uh, geared up. And 
they would go to Lester Melrose. He was an independent entrepreneur, and that that actually turns out to matter for the story. And they would pay him. He would find the musicians, rehearse the musicians, uh, make sure someone would write songs, that they'd be there at the session, go into the session, record the session. Uh, and then they would Columbia, uh, RCA Victor would have their records uh, to sell. So Lester Melrose was someone who could do that, but he was really living uh, engagement to engagement, gig to gig as a, uh, an independent entrepreneur. What he did uh, to ensure that there would be a, uh, a revenue stream, a stream of payments flowing to him over time to smooth out uh, the ups and the downs, whatever, if there are periods where, you know, recordings aren't as much in demand, uh, what might he do? Well, what he did was to set up um, a couple of publishing companies. And so uh, the payments would be made uh, 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 by the record companies to the publishing companies, and Lester Melrose would get a piece of, uh, of those payments uh, as the publisher. And uh, in addition to that, uh, his uh, arrangement with Big Bill and with other artists was uh, he would also get half of what the artist would get. So it wasn't 50-50, it was 75-25. Uh, now, um, Bill, in, uh, in later years, was quite bitter about this arrangement, and he wrote uh, in, um, in a number of places uh, about how unfair he believed that arrangement to be. And you could certainly make a case that that's an unfair arrangement. It did uh, at the time that each of the contracts was signed, and I was able to see uh, a number of these contracts in various collections. And in fact, the, the, uh, the, the contract is written in such a way that it mentions Big Bill Brunzi, but it also mentions uh, Lester Melrose. So the documentation is there. Uh, it was also the only way that he could have in at that time under those circumstances under those conditions uh in the the record industry and the 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 unique set of circumstances for lester melrose not being an employee of a record company that was the deal bill had to make if he was going to be able to make hundreds of recordings uh and uh, and hundreds of recordings more uh, not just as a featured artist but as uh, a session player so it was the deal he had to make in order to make uh, at least enough of a living in this business to become and to remain as prominent uh, as he uh, as he did. So again, it's a you know, a, a professional decision he was making. Uh, I, think the, I think the the economists like to call it a trade off, and so mm -hmm. I, I think he perhaps in the early days. Uh, may not have made a very informed choice. He writes in his autobiography about some of the murky circumstances uh, of the contracts or the arrangements or the payments or the lack of payments from his very uh, earliest recordings. Uh, but once again, uh, look, let's look at what Bill did with that experience of feeling very much uh, taken advantage of and exploited and, and ripped off. What he made it his business to do once he had become established as a star in the blues world by the 1940s and extending into the 1950s is he would um, make a point of reaching out to younger musicians, musicians who were less experienced in the music business, and tell them about his own experience and offer his guidance as to what they needed to do to protect their rights and to ensure that they would stand as good a chance as the conditions might permit 
uh, of getting what was theirs. There are accounts in a number of places of blues musicians uh, in, in giving oral histories or being interviewed years after Bill died, talking about, well, they'd written a song and then Big Bill Brunzi came along and said, you know, they were just playing it wherever they could play it. And Bill saying, here's what you need to do to make sure that you will get what is justly yours uh, for your for this creative. Uh, th this is your creation and you should get paid properly for it. So I think that is indicative of um, in many ways, uh, if Bill had a, a worldview or a, a philosophy, it was bad things happen. Bad things happen to people that that may even think that they are being uh, as savvy as they can be. But but given that um, you try to make the best of that and you certainly try to share whatever knowledge or whatever it is that your stature can give you if you've had some success, because that was the way he was perceived by uh, the succeeding generations uh, of blues musicians. They recognized that he had really not just stated the standard, but he'd exemplified it. Mm -hmm. So, so as you mentioned, his, his career really takes off in the late thirties and the forties and he becomes a star in his own right. Um, at some point, point you, you, you emphasize that he starts making this crossover to his audience, starts playing to, to white audiences. And, 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 you know, this is the first half of the 20th century. So that's a significant thing, right? His real, the, the, the if there were one event which uh, represented a turning point uh, for his career, once he had gotten to Chicago, learned to play the guitar and started as a blues recording artist, it would have been the appearance he made uh, in uh, 1938, uh, two nights before uh, Christmas, at Carnegie Hall in New York City. A uh, jazz producer and uh, impresario named John Hammond had organized a concert called that he called uh, From Spirituals to Swing. And his intent was, and, and John Hammond uh, had an extraordinary career in American music, having recorded everyone from Bessie Smith and Billie Holiday to Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan. And at that time, he was uh, a, a, a tremendously captivated by, uh, by jazz, and he wanted to present the subtitle, in fact, for this, uh, this event at Carnegie Hall, was An Evening of American Negro Music. He wanted to present to a New York audience, uh, which, which was um, uh, predominantly, although not exclusively, a white audience, the vitality and the diversity of African-American music that he was aware of because he had made it his business to become knowledge about it, knowledgeable about it and because he was passionate about it. So he got um, on the jazz side, he got uh, he got performers at the level of Sidney Bechet and Count Basie for gospel. He got Sister Rosetta Tharp and for blues. Uh, he want there was one musician that he wanted more than any other, uh, and that was Robert Johnson. So uh, he started looking for Robert Johnson and then discovered that tragically earlier that year, uh, that was when Robert Johnson had died. And uh, through his connections, Hammond's connections in the music business, uh, he then went to Big Bill to be the, rep the primary representative of the blues uh, as a performer in this setting. So Big Bill, uh, in 1938, walked on stage at Carnegie Hall, and he is—he was accompanied uh, by uh, the boogie woogie piano player Albert Ammons. But 
Ammons just plays a little bit in the background. I mean, this recording uh, exists and it's still available. What you hear is Big Bill uh, stepping up and singing a song that he debuted in that setting called Just a Dream. And in this song, he it, it, it's a very clever device. He presents the, the, he, that he has lots of money, that his, uh, he's got a mermaid for a wife. Uh, and then at the end of each verse, that's snatched away because it's just a dream. But, uh, but then he got to a verse where he said, I dreamed I was in the White House sitting in the president's chair. Uh, I dreamed he shaked my hand and said, Bill, I'm glad you're here. But it was just a dream. Now, the, what you hear is, is how the audience reacted to that. They just were swept away by this. This was a breathtaking image. It's an audacious image of an African-American in 1938 uh, being in the Oval Office uh, with the president, have the president say uh, he's glad he's here. What Bill took from that experience was that with his, only with his, his guitar, his singing, and he was a wonderful singer. You can hear in that recording and so many others how well he puts that across, how he, in such an engaging way. Uh, his, uh, his songwriting uh, and really his charisma, he could come into a setting, the most prestigious concert setting uh, in the United States uh, and, uh, and take the audience by storm. So that was the point. And from that point forward, for the next number of years, he continued to record and perform for primarily African-American audiences. But he had seen that about himself, that he could play to a predominantly white audience in this way. And in the years after World War II, there was a group founded, uh, started in New York City called People's Songs, uh, it was led by uh, uh, Alan Lomax was a leading figure. Woody Guthrie was very much involved. And it was an effort by a set of people who themselves were artists to devote their talents to uh, advance a set of causes that they believed in strongly. Uh, and that included uh, fighting for unions and also fighting uh, for racial justice. And one of the primary mechanisms that they would have to recruit new members as well as to uh, reinforce uh, the excitement of the uh, existing members of People's Songs was to do small concerts uh, that they called hootenannies or hoots. Uh, and uh, they uh, engaged a set of African-American performers, uh, it included Josh White, it included um, Brownie McGee, and uh, it included Big Bill, uh, and, and it wasn't limited to New York City. So Bill started performing uh, a little bit in New York City, and then People's Songs opened an office in Chicago. And Bill started performing at the, uh, the Hootenannies, the Hoots in Chicago. That's where Big Bill met Winstrocky uh, and Studs Terkel because they were each involved with people's songs. Uh, Wynn was a performer. He had a wonderful deep bass voice, and he made his living as a professional singer, uh, including of classical and religious music. Uh, but he loved folk music, and he believed passionately in the causes that people's songs uh, were supporting. So this was an era, this was a period, uh, where Alan Lomax presented a set of concerts in New York City at places like Town Hall, again, a fairly prestigious venue. And it was in those settings that Bill uh, started writing and then performing his song, Black, Brown and White Blues, 
with the chorus, if you're white, you're all right. If you're brown, stick around. If you're black, whoa, brother, get back, get back. So that was a song which was really as much of an anthem as he ever wrote and something of an anthem for the cohort of people who were starting to fight for racial justice in a way that, you know, a, a, a good decade or so later um, turned into something much larger and much deeper and much more powerful, the civil rights movement. But that Bill's uh, song was very much part of, uh, of the buildup to that. So Bill was um, performing, uh, he performed in Chicago with a group that Winstrocky and Studs Terkel uh, and Bill and, and a set of other people uh, at different times were part of called the I Come For To Sing Review. Uh, and they debuted at the University of Chicago in 1947. Uh, Studs was the narrator, and then each of the performers would play uh, a song in, in his respective style. Bill, of course, would play blues along a theme that, uh, that Studs would describe. But even that uh, presentation itself in 1947 was significant as an integrated group. This was a time when uh, Truman had not yet issued uh, his desegregation order for the United States Armed Forces. So the, the, the armed forces were not uh, officially uh, desegregated. It was a time that it was legal in Chicago under something called re uh, restrictive covenants for white landlords to refuse to rent to black tenants just on the basis of race. To so to have an integrated group performing folk songs um, was a powerful thing, uh, but it met with success. So that uh, the group performed, um, they traveled around, they played campuses, and then they uh, they, they traveled around the Midwest, uh, and then they really launched the modern era of folk music in Chicago when they got uh, a, a, a weekly residency that lasted uh, several years at the most prestigious jazz club uh, in Chicago, uh, the Blue Note, and what. That gave uh, Bill, it turned out, was a springboard because when Strachey was in touch with the leading promoter uh, and writer and really the leading figure in the French jazz world, Hugh Panassier, Panassier uh, had uh, been part of bringing over some African-American jazz performers uh, after the war, late 40s into the early 50s. Uh, but he loved Bill's music and he was excited about blues. Uh, and he checked with Wynn to see how, uh, you know, what performer uh, Wynn thought would be good. Wynn had seen Bill perform for uh, for several years alongside him uh, with white, primarily white audiences in the States. So it was on Wynn's endorsement that Bill uh, made, the made his first trip uh, over to Europe in 1951. Yeah, you covered a lot of covered about two or three pages with notes there on your that, but that that's great. Let's get to Europe then. Um, uh, how was he received in Europe? Um, what's fascinating to see, uh, what, what again, I I I learned things that I didn't anticipate in the course of doing the research. Um, it, I anticipated, and, and there had been enough um, written uh, by the time I started my research, uh, to know that uh, that Bill uh, was able to engage the European audiences as a performer very well, very successfully, uh, and it was coming, it was traveling as a uh, as a solo performer with uh, with just accompanying himself just on the acoustic guitar, uh, that actually enabled him uh, and, and a, a savvy agent. Uh, in England, acting on his behalf to cut to, to to make his way through a loophole 
in a standoff between the British Musicians Union and the American Musicians Union that was pre preventing uh, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, all the, the great uh, jazz performers of the time because th there was no reciprocal uh, privileges. And so, uh, so they couldn't invite uh, uh, any American bands to play. But the agent saw that if uh, a performer came just as a solo performer and or would use British musicians to back him, that would be okay. So that, that got Bill there. Uh, and once he was there, uh, he, he met with a wonderfully positive uh, reception. What, was, uh, what, I, what I only saw when I started to look for the reviews and the, interview, the reviews of Bill's concerts or the articles anticipating his arrival, and then once he arrived there, the interviews he gave to the British music press that I discovered something that I didn't know. And that is that uh, once Bill got to England, uh, really from the very first interview he gave, what he did was he certainly wanted to make sure that people would want to come to a big Bill Brunsey concert. So he would describe um, you know, his music uh, and you know, his style of performing. But he then did two other things. He began even in the interviews before he went on stage to talk about the world that the music came from. He talked about how the, if you're really going to be a real blues singer, and that's how he characterized himself uh, as a blues singer. Uh, he said, if you want to be a real blues singer, you had to have grown up in the world that I grew up in. You had to have been in a world of, of picking cotton and plowing behind mules, and that rural environment in the South where people were, were literally selling, singing field hollers across the field. So what he did was establish himself to the British music press, and the British, British music press was very knowledgeable about jazz and, uh, and, and, and quite knowledgeable about blues, but here they had someone who could not only perform, but who could give them a larger picture, uh, a level of context with detail and great anecdotes, because Bill was such a great storyteller, this, he became the go-to person for uh, anyone, right, for many people, and certainly many of the prominent people, the people with influence, writing about, uh, about blues and to some extent jazz uh, in the UK. So that established a role for himself that, he, that made him instantly uh, influential. The other thing he did was that from that, from the, again, the very first interview, when he talked about to sing the real blues, to be a real blues singer, you had to have come from that world. He said, now, there aren't that many guys uh, who meet that standard, but I'll tell you the name of one that when he comes over here, you're going to really love him, and that's Muddy Waters. So from the first time he set foot on British soil, he certainly wanted to make sure that, that Big Bill's name was known and his concerts would be well attended. But uh, he also was truly uh, being the advance uh, person for the next wave of blues musicians, whenever it would be, that would come over to Europe. And truly, that laid the groundwork, set the stage for uh, ten, a decade later, uh, the American folk blues tours, uh, which Willie Dixon was involved with, uh, with a, a set of German entrepreneurs, um, which brought uh, every, virtually every significant major uh, American blues musician over to Europe over the period of the next decades. And one of the reasons that there were audiences who would fill halls 
10 years later to see these performers was because Bill had done such an effective job. He was certainly looking out for his own interests, but he also wanted to make sure, again, he was using his status and, instat and his stature to make sure that others could follow uh, after him. So uh, we've skipped over quite a bit, and the, the readers will have to read your book to, to get much of it. Um, I hope so. I, I hope so, too. So to finish up here, why don't you discuss uh, Big Bill's uh, legacy? I mean, you mentioned, for instance, uh, especially on that early wave of, of British blues and rock like Eric Clapton and, and Pete Townsend has a, has a, writes a little piece. Uh, what is Big Bill's legacy? It, in terms of his impact on popular music, uh, you really can't underestimate, uh, you can't understate the, um, let me back up, in terms of Bill's impact on popular music, it's hard to overstate uh, Bill's impact on the generation of British teenagers, uh, a few of whom grew up to be Eric Clapton, Pete Townsend, Ray Davis, Keith Richards. Uh, they specifically identify Big Bill as someone who was a compelling and captivating figure, and he was the the blues musician who had this extended residency in Europe so that his records were available, he was performing, and even more than that, uh, there was a documentary that uh, Yannick and Margot Bruno, the Belgian couple, had made of him performing in an atmospheric a jazz club in Belgium in the mid-50s. That was shown on British TV um, in, in about 1956-57. And as Eric Clapton said, if it had been just the music alone, that would have been captivating enough. But to see the image of Bill as a solo blues man under a bare light bulb, cigarettes swirling, smoke swirling around uh, him as he played solo acoustic guitar, he said, that was like looking into heaven. So for, for, for the, 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 the British uh, performers who then uh, became, uh, for whom the blues was just a galvanizing uh, force in their lives and they were passionate about the way they sought it out and then incorporated it, there's a range. So for uh, Eric Clapton incorporates Big Bill songs into his repertoire, has for years songs like, uh, like Key to the Highway and, and Hey Hey. For other British musicians, they, it is fair to say that uh, for Big Bill, he's part of their musical DNA. Mm -hmm. Well, Bob, uh, uh, thank you very much for being on our show, um, our show, my show, my interview. Um, uh, what are you up to now, Bob? Are you writing anything else, doing any more research? What I'm doing right now is um, I'm pleased to report that the University of Chicago Press is uh, publishing a paperback edition of I Feel So Good that's coming out uh, this fall, the fall of 2012. Uh, and so I'm working on getting the word out about that. Uh, and I also um, was honored uh, to write the liner notes for a CD that Billy Boy Arnold uh, Chicago Blues Heartmaster, who was wonderfully just uh, elected to the Blues Hall of Fame, uh, Billy Boy Arnold's Billy Boy Arnold has recorded a Big Bill tribute CD called Billy Boy Arnold Sings Big Bill Brunzi. And so um, the focus of my efforts is to make sure uh, people know about uh, the book and the CD. Uh, and then uh, I've got a few 
thoughts on the back burner, but uh, it'll be time to get to them once we've shown as much of a light as we can on the book and the CD. Perfect. Thanks again, Bob, for, for doing the interview. And um, I wish, wish you the best of luck in your, your future research. Thanks so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to a conversation with Bob Reisman about his book, I Feel So Good, The Life and Times of Big Bill Brunsey, published by the University of Chicago in 2011. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.